A.M. American Majority. Days of Revolution is a podcast series brought to you by AmericanMajority.org. This is Ned Ryan, and welcome to Episode 18, The Colonies Unite. This week, I want to take a look at the Stamp Act Congress, a meeting of representatives from nine colonies gathering to formulate an organized, formal, diplomatic effort to repeal the tyrannical Stamp Act. Now, to remind those listening, the Stamp Act was passed by Parliament on March 22, 1765, but it was not set to go into effect until November 1st of that year. This left the colonies with a full seven months to organize their resistance, and they did so in multiple forms. The most overt opposition, which I discussed in the last episode, took the form of street protests, marches, and riots perpetuated by the Sons of Liberty and other groups. However, while, while violence and vandalism and occasional lawlessness prevailed in the streets, colonial lawmakers were cooking up reactions of their own. In May of 1765, the Virginia General Assembly passed the Virginia Resolves, authored by Patrick Henry as a colony-wide condemnation and nullification of the Stamp Act. When the resolves were passed, copies of the text were then mailed to all 12 of the other colonies, and their legislators took notice. Soon after hearing of the Virginia resolves, an energetic member of the Massachusetts legislature, a certain James Otis, who we have previously discussed in detail, called for a letter to be circulated through each of the North American colonies inviting each one to a conference concerning the Stamp Act. The letter was drafted and sent out in June of 1765. The colonial legislatures were asked to select representatives and send them to New York City, the decided meeting place, and nine of the colonies responded, with four not sending delegations, Georgia, North Carolina, Virginia, and New Hampshire. Historians generally believe that Georgia and North Carolina did not send representatives because the letter did not allow them adequate time to select a delegation and transport them the long distance to New York City. Virginia, having very recently passed the Virginia Resolves, had little compulsion to send a delegation to New York because it had already officially protested the Stamp Act in its legislature, and it did not feel the need to join the other colonies in a joint effort. And for all I know, New Hampshire just wanted to be a contrarian. The Stamp Act Congress began meeting on October 19, 1765, less than two weeks before the Stamp Act was set to take effect. The attendees were all legislators in their own colonies, chosen from among their assemblies to represent their home states. The most prominent attendees were James Otis and Samuel Adams, both representing Massachusetts. However, also in attendance were several men who would go on to sign the Declaration of Independence, including Thomas McKean and Caesar Rodney of Delaware, Thomas Lynch of South Carolina, Philip Livingston of New York, and John Morton of Pennsylvania. The Stamp Act Congress addressed three main issues, the right of self-taxation by the colonies, the right to a trial by jury, and the injustice being committed daily in the admiralty courts. The delegates concluded without much debate that their rights in these areas and others were not being protected or upheld by the British government. In fact, they agreed that the Stamp Act deliberately supplanted these rights. The act was passed as an internal tax to be levied on commerce within the colonies and enforced by agents of the British government. It was passed in London with no representation for the American colonies, the very people who would be coerced to pay the tax. In addition, the petitions and delegations sent to England to lobby against the act had been ignored. 
The Stamp Act's passage was a prime example of taxation without representation, and this process set a dangerous precedent for the colonies. Second, the right to a trial by jury was being waived more and more frequently as time went on. The main forum for such legal proceedings were the admiralty courts, the third topic of conversation. These courts, which were meant to try accused smugglers without the benefit of a jury, had their jurisdictions expanded under the Sugar Act of 1764. The Stamp Act expanded that authority even further to the point that an admiralty court could try anyone accused of conducting business on unstamped paper, also without the benefit of a jury. At the time of the Stamp Act Congress, concerns over representation, trial by jury, and the admiralty courts were relevant to every colonist, from the wealthy to the common laborer. The representatives in New York City decided to draft a list of statements addressed to the king and parliament in a style similar to the Virginia Resolves. This list of resolutions was called the Declaration of Rights and Grievances, as it was a comprehensive list of Britain's failures to protect the natural rights of its subjects in the American colonies. The points of the Declaration were generally agreed upon by the representatives of the colonies, and thus they represented the collective convictions of the American colonists. The list was 14 points long, and each statement represented a truth about the nature of the relationship between Britain and the colonies as it should have been. It's important to highlight a few of the more important points of the Declaration. So I begin with the second resolution. This point argued, like the Virginia Resolves, that the American colonists were subjects to the British crown and that they had a right to all the rights and privileges guaranteed to British subjects. In addition, the third point definitively stated that only the colonies should have the authority to tax themselves and that this localized sovereignty of the colonies was inseparably essential to the freedom of the people. Continuing the defiant tone of the Declaration of Rights, the fourth point states uncompromisingly that the people of these colonies are not, and from their local circumstances cannot be, represented in the House of Commons in Great Britain. It is important to note the clause in this statement asserting that the colonists cannot be represented by the House of Commons. Because of the tradition of localized government that had prevailed in the colonies for at least a century, the Stamp Act Congress only considered representation legitimate if the representatives were chosen not only by the people, but from among the people. So, in effect, this point was a direct refutation of virtual representation, which Parliament had offered as an excuse for several controversial acts since the French and Indian War. The Declaration continued by condemning the Stamp Act for its expansion of the Admiralty Courts. In its eighth point, the Congress expressed its fear that this expansion of power had a manifest tendency to subvert the rights and liberties of the colonists. Finally, the document concluded by directly calling for repeal of the Stamp Act. The Congress wrote, It is an indispensable duty of these colonies to endeavor to procure the repeal of the Act for granting and applying certain stamp duties. The Stamp Act Congress saw it not just as a good idea, but as a duty and an indispensable one at that, to work for repeal and for liberty. Importantly, the Declaration of Rights and Grievances was composed in a humble tone, requesting repeal by the grace of the King and Parliament. The Stamp Act Congress sought to create an air of confrontation in their declaration, but they made certain not to suggest any intention of separatism. 
The preamble of the Declaration indicated that it came with the warmest sentiments of affection and duty to His Majesty's person and government, and voyably attached to the present happy establishment of the Protestant succession. The fact that the list of grievances was sent with the warmest sentiments of affection and duty tells us that the colonists still felt that their appeal to justice should be to the king. However, in time we will see that when rejected by George III in Parliament, they began to appeal to a higher power, nature, and nature's God, as they would later in the Declaration of Independence. In 1765, however, they were aggravated, but the colonists still remained loyal servants to the crown. Revolution was not even a possibility for the colonists because the ties of loyalty to Britain remained far too strong, even in spite of the Stamp Act. The goal of the Stamp Act Congress was to use whatever means necessary to achieve repeal of the Act and nothing more. In 1765, every man attending the Stamp Act Congress swore his allegiance to the crown. However, in spite of the delegates' sworn loyalty, the public assembly of colonial delegations did not resonate well with the British authorities. There had not been such a meeting of the colonies since the 1754 Albany Conference, and the result of that conference was rendered null and void by Parliament precisely because of the potential threat posed to British domination by colonial unification. Now, 11 years later, when the colonies sought to unite once again to confront a common threat, the British lords of trade grew uneasy and expressed their discomfort with such a conference. In a letter to Parliament, the Lords wrote that the Stamp Act was a matter of the utmost importance to the Kingdom and the Legislature of Great Britain, and proper only for the consideration of Parliament. By this statement, they meant that Parliament should know that the colonies had begun communicating across colonial borders, and were assembling without the consent of the supreme legislative body. The perception of the Lords of Trade and of Parliament was that the colonies had decided to act as their own Parliament, and were disregarding the authority of the British legislative body by meeting without their consent. However, by the time Parliament had been notified of the Stamp Act Congress's existence, the conference in New York City had already begun. General Thomas Gage, the officer in charge of all British military forces in North America, also perceived the Stamp Act Congress as a threat to British authority. In a letter, Gage described the men who had gathered in New York City as everything short of rebels, saying, They are of various characters and opinions, but it's to be feared in general that the spirit of democracy is strong amongst them. Now, we think of the spirit of democracy as a good thing today because we equate democracy with greater freedom and liberty, which was exactly the problem for Gage. After being governed by a monarchy for over a thousand years, the British equated democracy with revolution and chaos. Thus, by saying that the delegates to the Stamp Act Congress had the spirit of democracy, Gage meant that they had a strong desire for decentralized power and individual liberty, and that these were dangerous sentiments. He was also insinuating that the men gathered in New York City just didn't understand their place in the world. Apparently for Gage, the Stamp Act Congress's repeated oaths of loyalty to the king were not sufficient to quell his fears. The immediate effects of the Stamp Act Congress are notable, and the implications of its Declaration of Rights are invaluable as well. The definitive stance of the attending colonies, along with popular resistance and poor enforcement, contributed to the repeal of the Stamp Act in February of 1766, a little less than four months after it took effect and less than a year after it had been passed. The significance of this accomplishment cannot be overstated because it proved to the colonists 
that they could successfully unite to defy the crown. In addition, it proved that Parliament was not immovable and that violent public displays and concerted legislative efforts could culminate in successful resistance to the traditionally dominant royal authority. In our context as students of history, the repeal of the Stamp Act was significant for the precedent of representative action set by the Stamp Act Congress. The Congress and the colonial legislatures that participated in it were the epitome of Republican government. The delegates assembled to preserve the prerogatives of their constituents in a radical way, and in a way that was uniquely American. In what would become the maxim of American politics, the colonial legislatures represented the interests of their people and fought to protect their liberties, not to compete with them. And so, though the Stamp Act Congress may seem to be isolated in the distant past, it still affects us because the expectations of representation that motivated its delegates are the same expectations that we hold of our elected representatives today. Rather than sending them to govern without our scrutiny or concern in mind, we elect representatives to preserve the very liberties by which we live and work, constituting a very unique relationship between the governors and the governed. Those governing are actually the servants of those they govern. The job description of today's American politician was written over two centuries ago by our forefathers, and it is no less relevant now than it was then. Days of Revolution is a podcast series brought to you by AmericanMajority.org and written by Ned Ryan and Eric Josephson and recorded by Ned Ryan. If you enjoy this podcast on American history, be sure to check out the History of the Constitutional Convention by Ned Ryan at AmericanMajority.org or on iTunes.